Chapter 14 He declares that he saw the day before five hundred and four brothers of the order led to the stake because they would not confess the above-mentioned errors, and he heard it said that they were burned. But he fears that he himself would not resist if he were to be burned, that he would confess in the presence of the Lord Magistrates and anyone else, if questioned, and say that all the errors with which the order has been charged are true, that he, if asked, would also confess to killing our Lord. Testimony of Emery de Villiers-le-Duc, May 13, 1310 A trial full of silences, contradictions, enigmas, and acts of stupidity. The acts of stupidity were the most obvious, and because they were inexplicable, they generally coincided with the enigmas. In those halcyon days I believed that the source of enigma was stupidity. Then the other evening in the periscope I decided that the most terrible enigmas are those that mask themselves as madness. But now I have come to believe that the whole world is an enigma, a harmless enigma that is made terrible by our own mad attempt to interpret it as though it had an underlying truth. With the collapse of the Christian kingdoms of the Holy Land, the Templars were left without a purpose, or rather they soon turned their means into an end. They spent their time managing their immense wealth. Philip the Fair, a monarch intent on building a centralized state, naturally disliked them. They were a sovereign order beyond any royal control. The Grand Master ranked as a prince of the blood. He commanded an army, administered vast land holdings, was elected like the emperor, and had absolute authority. The French treasury was located in the temple in Paris, outside the king's control. The Templars were the trustees, proxies, and administrators of an account that was the king's only in name. They paid funds in and out and manipulated the interest. They acted like a great private bank, but enjoyed all the privileges and exemptions of a state institution. The king's treasurer was a Templar. How could a ruler rule under such conditions? If you can't lick him, join him. Philip asked to be made an honorary Templar. Request denied, an insult no king could swallow. He suggested that the Pope merge Templars and Hospitallers and place the new order under the control of one of his sons. Jacques de Molay, Grand Master of the Temple, arrived with great pomp from Cyprus, where he lived like a monarch in exile. He handed the Pope a memorandum that supposedly assessed the advantages of the merger, but actually emphasized its disadvantages. Molay brazenly argued that, among other things, the Templars were far wealthier than the Hospitallers, that the merger would enrich the latter at the expense of the former, thus putting the souls of his knights in jeopardy. Molay won the first round. The plan was shelved. The only recourse left was slander, and here the king held good cards. Rumors about the Templars had been circulating for a long time. Imagine how these colonials must have looked to right-thinking Frenchmen— these people who collected tithes everywhere while giving nothing in return, not even, any more, their own blood as guardians of the Holy Sepulchre. True, they were Frenchmen, but not completely. People saw them as pieds noirs. At the time the term was poulain. The Templars flaunted their exotic ways. It was said that among themselves they even spoke the language of the Moors, with which they were familiar. Though they were monks, their savage nature was common knowledge. Some years before, Pope Innocent III had issued a bull entitled De Insolentia Templariorum. They had taken a vow of poverty, but they lived with the pomp of aristocrats, with the greed of the new merchant classes, and with the effrontery of a corps of musketeers. The Whispering Campaign was not long in coming. The Templars were homosexuals, heretics, idolaters, worshipping a bearded head of unknown provenance. 
Perhaps they shared the secrets of the Ismailis, for they had had dealings with the assassins of the Old Man of the Mountain. Philip and his advisers put these rumors to good use. Philip was assisted by his two evil geniuses, Marigny and Nogaret. It was Marigny who ultimately got control of the Templar treasury, administering it on the king's behalf until it was transferred to the hospitalers. It is not clear who got the interest. Nogaret, the king's lord chancellor, in 1313 had been the strategist behind the incident in Anigny, when Shara Colonna slapped Boniface VIII, and the Pope died of humiliation less than a month later. Then a man by the name of Escan de Florin appeared on the scene. Apparently, while imprisoned for unspecified crimes and on the verge of being executed, Florin encountered a renegade Templar in his cell, and from him heard a terrible confession. In exchange for his life and a tidy sum, Florin told everything, which turned out to be exactly what everybody was already rumoring. Now the rumors became formal depositions before a magistrate. The king transmitted Florin's sensational revelations to the Pope, Clement V, who later moved the papal seat to Avignon. Clement believed some of the charges, but knew it would not be easy to interfere in the temple's affairs. In 1307, however, he agreed to open an official inquiry. Molay, the Grand Master, was informed, but declared that his conscience was clear. At the king's side he continued to take part in official ceremonies, a prince among princes. Clement V seemed to be stalling, and the king began to suspect that the Pope wanted to give the Templars time to disappear. But no, the Templars went on drinking and blaspheming in their commanderies, seemingly unaware of the danger. And this is the first enigma. On September 14, 1307, the king sent sealed messages to all the bailiffs and seneschals of the realm, ordering the mass arrest of the Templars and the confiscation of their property. A month went by between the issuing of this order and the arrest on October 13th. But the Templars suspected nothing. On that October morning they all fell into the trap, and, another enigma, gave themselves up without a fight. In fact, in the days before the arrests, using the most feeble excuses, the king's men, wanting to make sure that nothing would escape confiscation, had conducted a kind of inventory of the temple's possessions throughout the country, and still the Templars did nothing. Come right in, my dear bailiff, take a look around, make yourself at home. When he learned what had happened, the Pope hazarded a protest, but it was too late. The royal investigators had already brought out their irons and ropes, and many knights had begun to confess under torture. When they confessed, they were handed over to inquisitors who had methods of their own, even though they were not yet burning people at the stake. The knights confirmed their confessions. This is the third mystery. Granted, there was torture, and it must have been vigorous, since thirty-six knights died in the course of it. But not a single one of these men of iron, seasoned by their battles with the cruel Turk, resisted arrest. In Paris only four knights out of a hundred and thirty-eight refused to confess. All the others did, including Jacques de Molay. What did they confess? Belbo asked. They confessed exactly what was charged in the arrest warrant. There was hardly any variation in the testimony, at least not in France and Italy. In England, where nobody really wanted to go through with the trial, the usual accusations appeared in the depositions, but they were attributed to witnesses outside the order, whose testimony was hearsay. In other words, the Templars confessed only when asked to, and then only to what was charged. Same old inquisitional stuff, we've seen it often, Belbo remarked. Yet the behavior of the accused was odd. The charges were that during their initiation rites the Templars denied Christ three times, spat on the crucifix, 
and were stripped and kissed in posteriori parte spine dorsi, in other words, on the behind, then on the navel and the mouth, in humane dignitatis opprobrium, that they then engaged in mutual fornication, that they were then shown the head of a bearded idol which they had to worship. Now, how did the accused respond to these charges? Geoffroy de Charnay, who was later burned at the stake with Molay, said that, yes, it had happened to him. He had denied Christ, but with his mouth, not his heart. He didn't recall whether he spat on the crucifix because they had been in such a hurry that night. As for the kiss on the behind, that also had happened to him, and he had heard the preceptor of Auvergne say that, after all, it was better to couple with brothers than to be befouled by a woman, but he personally had not committed carnal sins with other knights. In other words, yes, it's all true, but it was only a game. Nobody really believed in it, and anyway it was the others who did it. I just went along to be polite. Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master himself, said that when they gave him the crucifix he only pretended to spit on it and spat on the ground instead. He admitted that the initiation ceremonies were more or less as described, but, to tell the truth, he couldn't say for sure, because he had initiated very few brothers in the course of his career. Another knight said that he had kissed the master, but only on the mouth, not the behind. It was the master who kissed him on the behind. Some did confess to more than was necessary, saying that they had not only denied Christ, but also called him a criminal, and they had denied the virginity of Mary, and they had urinated on the crucifix, not only on the day of their initiation, but during Holy Week as well. They didn't believe in the sacraments, they said, and they worshipped not only Baphomet, but also the devil in the form of a cat. Equally grotesque, though not as incredible, is the pas de deux that now begins between the king and the pope. The pope wants to take charge of the case. The king insists on seeing the trial through to its conclusion. The pope suggests a temporary suspension of the order. The guilty will be sentenced, then the temple will be revived in its original purity. The king wants the scandal to spread, wants it to involve the entire order. This will lead to the order's complete dissolution, politically, religiously, and, most of all, financially. At one point a document is produced that's a pure masterpiece. Some doctors of theology argue that in order to prevent them from retracting their confessions, the accused should be denied any defense. Since they have already confessed, there is no need for a trial. A trial is required only if some doubt about the case exists, and here there is no doubt. Why allow them a defense whose only purpose would be to shield them from the consequences of their admitted errors? The evidence renders their punishment inescapable. But there is still a risk that the Pope might take control of the trial, so the King and Nogaret set up a sensational case involving the Bishop of Troyes, who was accused of witchcraft by the secret testimony of a mysterious conspirator named Nofodei. It will be discovered later that Dei lied, and he will be hanged for his trouble, but in the meantime the poor bishop is publicly accused of sodomy, sacrilege, and usury, the same crimes as the Templars. Perhaps the king is trying to show the sons of France that the church has no right to sit in judgment on the Templars, since it is itself not untouched by their sins, or perhaps he is simply giving the Pope a warning to stay away. It's all very murky, a crisscrossing of various police forces and secret services, mutual infiltrations and anonymous accusations. The Pope is now cornered, and he agrees to interrogate seventy-two Templars who repeat the confessions they made under torture. But the Pope observes that they have repented, and uses their abjuration, a trump card, as an excuse to pardon them. And here something else happens. It was a problem I had to resolve in my thesis, but I was torn between contradictory sources. 
Just when the Pope has finally won jurisdiction over the knights, he suddenly hands them back to the king. Why does this happen? Molay retracts his confession. Clement allows him a defense, and three cardinals are summoned to interrogate him. On November 26, 1309, Molay proudly defends the order and its purity. He even goes so far as to threaten its accusers. But then he is visited by an envoy from the king, Guillaume de Plaisant, whom Molay considers a friend. He is given some obscure advice, and two days later, on November 28, he issues a meek and vague deposition in which he claims to be a poor, uneducated knight, and he confines himself to listing the, now remote, merits of the temple, its acts of charity, the blood the Templars shed in the Holy Land, and so on. To make matters worse, Nogare suddenly arrives and reminds everyone that the temple once had dubious contacts with Saladin. Now the implied crime is high treason. Molay's excuses are pathetic. He has endured two years in prison, and in this deposition he seems a broken man, but he seemed a broken man immediately after his arrest, too. In March of the following year Molay adopts a new strategy in a third deposition. Now he refuses to speak at all, saying that he will address the Pope himself, but no one else. A dramatic twist, and here the epic theatre begins. In April of 1310, five hundred and fifty Templars asked to be allowed to speak in defense of the order. They denounce the torture to which they have been subjected, and deny the charges against them. They demonstrate that all the accusations are implausible. But the king and Nogare know what to do. Some Templars have retracted their confessions. Fine, their retraction only makes them recidivists and perjurers. Relapsy, a terrible charge in those days. He who confesses and repents may be pardoned, but he who not only does not repent, but also retracts his confession, forswears himself, and stubbornly denies that he has anything to repent, he must die. Fifty such perjurers are condemned to death. It is easy to predict the response of the other prisoners. If you confess, you stay alive, though locked up, and you can wait and see what happens. If you do not confess, or worse, if you retract your confession, you go to the stake. The five hundred surviving retractors retract their retraction. As it turns out, the ones who repented chose wisely. In 1312, those who have not confessed are sentenced to life imprisonment, whereas those who confessed are pardoned. Philip is not looking for a massacre, he just wants to dissolve the order. The freed knights, broken in mind and body by four or five years in prison, quietly drift into other orders. All they want is to be forgotten, and this silent disappearance will fuel the legend of the order's underground survival. Molay was still asking to be heard by the Pope. Clement had convened a council in Vienne in 1311, but Molay had not been invited. The suppression of the order is ratified and its property turned over to the Hospitallers, though temporarily it is to be administered by the King. Another three years go by, and finally an agreement is reached with the Pope. On March 19, 1314, in front of Notre Dame, Molay is sentenced to life imprisonment. He reacts with a surge of dignity. He had expected the Pope to allow him to exculpate himself. He now feels betrayed. He knows that if he retracts yet again he will be condemned as a recidivist and perjurer. What does he feel in his heart as he stands there after almost seven years awaiting judgment? Does he regain the courage of his forebears? Or does he simply decide that, ruined as he is now, condemned to end his days in dishonor, buried alive, he might as well die a decent death? Because he protests in a loud voice that he and his brothers are innocent. The Templars, he says, committed one crime and one crime only. Out of cowardice they betrayed the temple. He will do so no longer. 
Nogare is overjoyed. A public crime requires public condemnation, definitive, immediate. Geoffroy de Charnay, the Templar preceptor of Normandy, follows Molay's example. The king makes his decision that very day. A pyre is erected at the tip of the Ile de la Cité. At sundown, Molay and Charnay are burned at the stake. Tradition has it that before his death the Grand Master prophesied the ruin of his persecutors, and indeed the Pope, the King, and Nogare all die before the year is out. Once the King is gone, Marigny comes under suspicion of embezzlement. His enemies accuse him of witchcraft and have him hanged. Many begin to think of Molay as a martyr. Dante himself voices widespread indignation at the persecution of the Templars. And that is where history ends and legend begins. One part of the legend insists that when Louis XV was guillotined, an unknown man climbed onto the block and shouted, Jacques de Molay, you are avenged. That was more or less the story I told that night at Pilates, with constant interruptions. Belbo, for instance, would ask, Are you sure you didn't read this in Orwell or Kessler? Or, Wait a minute, this is just what happened to that what's-his-name, that guy in the Cultural Revolution. And Dio Talevi kept interjecting sententiously, Historia Magistra Vitae, to which Belbo responded, Come on, Kabbalists don't believe in history. And Diotalevi invariably answered, That's just the point. Everything is repeated in a circle. History is a master because it teaches us that it doesn't exist. It's the permutations that matter. We still haven't answered the real question, Belbo finally said. Who were the Templars? At first you made them sound like sergeants in a John Ford movie, then like a bunch of bums, then like knights in an illuminated miniature, then like bankers of God carrying on their dirty deals, then like a routed army, then like devotees of a satanic sect, and finally like martyrs to free thought. What were they in the end? Probably they were all those things. What was the Catholic Church, a Martian historian in the year 3000 might ask? The people who got themselves thrown to the lions or the ones who killed heretics? All of the above. But did they do those horrible things, or didn't they? The funny thing is that their followers, the Neo-Templars of various epochs, say they did, and they offer justifications. For instance, it was like fraternity hazing. You want to be a Templar? Okay, prove you have balls. Spit on the crucifix, and let's see if God strikes you dead. If you join this militia, you have to give yourself to your brother's heart and soul, so let them kiss your ass. An alternative thesis is that they were asked to deny Christ in order to see how they would behave if the Saracens got them, which seems idiotic because you don't train someone to resist torture by making him do, even if only symbolically, what the torturer will ask of him. A third thesis, in the East the Templars had come into contact with Manichaean heretics who despised the cross, regarding it as the instrument of the Lord's torture. The Manichaeans also preached renunciation of the world and discouraged marriage and procreation an old idea common to many heresies in the early centuries of Christianity. It was later taken up by the Cathars, and in fact there's a whole tradition claiming that the Templars were steeped in Catharism. And this would explain the sodomy, also only symbolic. Let's assume the Knights came into contact with Manichaean heretics. Well, they weren't exactly intellectuals, so perhaps, partly out of naivete, partly out of snobbery and esprit de corps, they invented a personal ceremony to distinguish themselves from the other crusaders. They performed various ritual acts of recognition without bothering about their significance. And that Baphomet business? Many of the depositions do mention a figura Baphometi, 
but this may have been an error made by the first scribe, an error copied into all subsequent documents. Or the records may have been tampered with. In some cases there was talk of Muhammad, istut caput vester deus est et vester mahumet, which would suggest that the Templars had created a syncretic liturgy of their own. Some depositions say that they were also urged to call out Yala, which could be Allah. But the Moslems didn't worship images of Muhammad, so where does the object come from? The depositions say that many people saw carved heads, but sometimes it was not just a head, but a whole idol, wooden with kinky hair, covered with gold, and always with a beard. It seems that investigators did find such heads and confronted the accused with them, but no trace of them remains. Everyone saw the heads and no one saw them. Like the cat. Some saw a gray cat, others a red cat, others still a black cat. Imagine being interrogated with a red-hot iron. Did you see a cat during the initiation? Well, why not a cat? A Templar farm where stored grain had to be protected against mice would be full of cats. The cat was not a common domestic animal in Europe back then, but in Egypt it was. Maybe the Templars kept cats in the house, though right-minded folk looked upon such animals with suspicion. Same thing with the heads of Baphomet. Maybe they were reliquaries in the shape of a head, not unknown at the time. Of course, some say Baphomet was an alchemic figure. Alchemy always comes up, Diotalevi said, nodding. The Templars probably knew the secret of making gold. Of course they did, Belbo said. It was simple enough. Attack a Saracen city, cut the throats of the women and children, and grab everything that's not nailed down. The truth is that this whole story is a great big mess. Maybe the mess was in their heads. What did they care about doctrinal debates? History is full of little sects that make up their own style, part swagger, part mysticism. The Templars themselves didn't really understand what they were doing. On the other hand, there's always the esoteric explanation. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were adepts of Oriental mysteries, and even the kiss on the ass had a ritual meaning. Do explain to me briefly the ritual meaning of the kiss on the ass, Diotalevi said. All right. Some modern esotericists maintain that the Templars were reviving certain Indian doctrines. The kiss on the ass serves to wake the serpent Kundalini, a cosmic force that dwells at the base of the spinal column in the sexual glands. Once wakened, Kundalini rises to the pineal gland. Descartes' pineal gland? I think it's the same one. A third eye is then supposed to open up in the brow, the eye that lets you see directly into time and space. This is why people are still seeking the secret of the Templars. Philip the Fair should have burned the modern esotericists instead of those poor bastards. Yes, except that the modern esotericists don't have two pennies to rub together. Now you see the kind of stories we have to listen to, Belbo concluded. At least I understand why so many of my lunatics are obsessed with these Templars. It's a little like what you were saying the other day. The whole thing is a twisted syllogism. Act like a lunatic, and you will be inscrutable forever. Abracadabra, manaltecal fares, pape Satan, pape Satan alepe, la vierge le vivace et le bel aujourd'hui. Whenever a poet or preacher, chief or wizard, spouts gibberish, the human race spends centuries deciphering the message. The Templar's mental confusion makes them indecipherable. That's why so many people venerate them. A positivist explanation, Diotalevi said. Yes, I agreed. Maybe I am a positivist. A little surgery on the pineal gland might have turned the Templars into hospitalers. Normal people, in other words. War somehow damages the cerebral circuitry. Maybe it's the sound of the cannon or the Greek fire. Look at our generals. 
It was one o'clock. Dio Talevi, drunk on tonic water, was clearly unsteady. We all said good night. I had enjoyed myself, so had they. We didn't yet know that we had begun to play with fire, Greek fire, the kind that burns and destroys.